So why don't we start with uh, with, with Lon Speck? Uh, I know you've got a busy morning, so like, do you want to tell us about what's what's happening this morning? Yes, certainly. So I'm afraid I've got to leg it out of here because there's nothing like a ministerial announcement at nine o'clock to make sure you turn up in the right place. We're about to announce our second round of funding. Um, so LaunchVic is the government's $60 million startup agency, and we're here to fund and grow and support the startup ecosystem in Melbourne and the state of Victoria. So it's very exciting to uh, be um, today. We've got a big day and, and been able to announce more projects that we're supporting to help support people like you who are, who are perhaps interested in stepping in or growing your business or gaining access to opportunities to, to, to expand your own businesses and ideas. So can I ask you a little bit about you? So you've got, I, mean, I think sometimes my background is quite interesting, but yours is uh, much more interesting. So you're an academic, uh, you've been an entrepreneur, and now you're in, in government. So I mean... Maybe first of all, what's your PhD in? My PhD is in a very exciting topic called polarization mode dispersion in ultra long haul fiber networks. Wow. Um, thankfully, I don't talk about that topic very often. Um, it's, uh, it's actually ultimately was related to fiber to the premise infrastructure, and it was a PhD in how do we get more data down ultra long haul fibers because of the the, the swathe of fiber to the premise that was being rolled out across Australia. All right, so basically, so, you're a hardcore techie. I have been. Okay. I have been. I think I, it's fair to say that I um, have left a little bit of that behind, and I've probably killed some of those brain cells <laughs> with, with, other, with other areas. My career has definitely been eclectic, so I've um, been very lucky to have a lot of broad range of experiences in, in many different areas. So. so, But your last role before this, which I think is relevant, was in... Uh, Technology. So you were running a software business. Do you want to tell yeah. us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I was running a software business called Rizzi Unlimited. I'd like to acknowledge Colin McLeod, who's in the audience somewhere, who is our former former uh, former director of the company. Um, we had a we were running a software company that was really put simply a little bit like Uber for staffing, but with the Australian awards built in. We we grew it. We raised twelve million dollars um, over uh, two years. Um, listed it on the ASX. Um, we had a rather interesting ride, as many many um, startups do. And I exited from that business last August. The business still is 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 going along and um, doing well, but it was certainly a really interesting learning curve. We we chose the listing route. We actually did a, a reverse listing, which was a very very insightful experience. Um, one that I think there's a lot of positives to come from and a lot of negatives to come from. So. A, a, Felt like it was a very steep learning curve. Well, here's the question: If you had your time over, would you have reverse listed no, again? Def no, definitely not. I think at the right time for the right company, it's a great avenue for money. And the reality is, is we in Australia talk a lot about the need for venture capital and more access to capital, but often we overlook as a startup community the fact that we have more high-risk capital in this company in this country than many many other countries, including Silicon Valley on a per capita basis, and that's the mining industry. We've got a phenomenal amount of investment from Australian investors as well as global investors investing in high-risk ventures and the route they choose to do that is listing and so when you go to Silicon Valley and their model is all around venture capital we have to look at Australia and say we've actually got a lot of money that knows this pathway 
and, and there is capital there, but there's a big gap between mining high risk and technology high risk. And I think that if we're going to explore that route, we have to do a lot more around investor education to understand the life cycle of a technology company. The life cycle of digging up a paddock in Western Australia is very, very different from growing a software company. And, and we've got to help people understand that. And I think that if we can do that, we can actually open up a lot more capital that is here in Australia and has the potential to be high risk yeah. and is happy to be high risk. But it has to be done sensibly. And um, as the, the wives' tale goes, you've got to pick your investors and you've got to get the right investors on board. And I think in hindsight, we didn't get the right investors on board. Yeah. But it's it probably, I mean, I'd love to talk about this mm. for, I mean, I, it's an area of passion around the, the whole IPO and reverse yeah. listing, mm. which, which I agree with you. Is, I don't think it's the right move, but yeah. maybe save that for another mm. uh, day because we don't have much time. So, um, so what I'm keen to, to understand is how you got from that. I mean, how did the call saying, hey, we've got this LaunchVic thing uh, come in, who was it, and how did you get involved in LaunchVic? Yeah, well, it was, it was very interesting. So my background in between the PhD and, um, and, and the startup, I was um, worked in government on the NBN policy. I worked as a ministerial advisor on the so you worked for Conroy. I worked for Conroy, yeah. yeah. And I also worked at Melbourne University running a couple of research institutes, and most recently my role at Melbourne was Director of Industry Engagement and Innovation. So I'd sort of had this sort of eclectic career always around innovation and technology. And um, I, I think it was actually almost a discussion with, with Colin, our director. We decided that it was time to move on, and, and I'd stepped down. I thought, right, I'm having six months off. It's going to be fantastic. I haven't had a break. And I went out with a friend and said, what's your next dream job? And I sort of said, well, I'd really like to do something like bang, 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 and wrote it. Well, I didn't write it down, but I verbalized it. And literally the next day I got the phone call saying, a headhunter saying, would you be interested in this job? Bang, 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 bang. <laughs> I thought, no, I don't really. I've got a, I've got a six-month uh, holiday in my mind. And um, I thought, well, I should really go through the interview process and see what it's about because it's not often you get offered a job. To, to work in a sector that you're deeply passionate about, you've got um, effectively, it's certainly not a blank slate, um, but it, there's a lot of freedom to really make a difference. And it, the more I learned about the role, the more excited I became about the role, and ultimately I got offered it, and once I was offered it, there was no turning back. So awesome. here I am. So, But it's an interesting model because it's not venture capital, it's not just a uh grant funding process, but I mean, what is it? How do you define what LaunchVic is? Yeah, it's, it's a really big question that we're, we're grappling with at the moment. I think um, there's a lot of misrepresentation around LaunchVic um, in the sector as, a, as an investment fund. People think of it as an investment fund, and our round two, which we're just about to announce, we had 300 applications, and despite the fact that the guidelines said, you know, we don't support individual startups. The reality is we do get a lot of startups applying for, for money from us, so therefore we, we can't support. But um, what we are interested in doing is taking it to, to where should we be, which is, yes, we want to support programs that are going to increase the caliber and the diversity of our entrepreneurial sector in Melbourne. But I think there's a much broader role for us in, for example, marketing and marketing Melbourne as a, as a, as a startup ecosystem. We have a phenomenal um, confluence of things happening in Melbourne, which I think are really exciting. We've got phenomenal research base and ultimately really world-class ecosystems like Silicon Valley, like Tel Aviv, like London, like New York, like Boston, and many, many others rely on having core expertise that's very, very deep that can see lots of ideas come through. Um, and we have that in spades. I, you know, we're one of the, the, the top biomedical research precincts. It's literally a stone's throw from here. 
Um, so we've got phenomenal research, and I can talk for hours about research. Um, we've got a government that's open and, and, and open to innovation and driving innovation, and that goes for both federal as, as well as state. Um, we've, really? I think, we'll, we'll come back to I the think, federal question. I think, <laughs> I think we have compared to many other countries. So okay. it, I think the intent is there. Could they do more? I, I think that's certainly an open discussion. But I, I think we've got a, a, a healthy economy. It could be healthier, but we have a healthy economy. We have great people. We have a very collaborative culture. So on a positive, we've got lots of ingredients of people, money, ideas circling around, which is great. On the negative side, we've been unable to successfully commercialize research on a, on a big scale, which is a major issue. Um, I think we've got some cultural issues around tall poppy syndrome um, that mean that we don't tend to celebrate our successes. Therefore, our sector tends to just go a little bit under the radar at times. Um, and I think that we have a talent shortage. And it's not just ICT talent. It's the scrappy people who are prepared to take the leap into a startup and you know they can be director of marketing that in the evening is laying out the um, sandwiches and cutting cucumbers to, to, for their investors and emptying the dishwasher. And, and there's very few people of, of high caliber that are prepared to, to take both those roles. So be there and be director of marketing, but realize that their marketing team is them themselves and, and I, and, and that they no longer have a team of 20 or 50 or 100 or whatever they might expect from a corporate career but at the same time be prepared to, to do the scrappy things that make a startup work and the stress and the pressure and, the, and, and all the things that go along with it. I think another thing about startups is we tend to glamorize, and I think there's been a huge um, issue about the glamorization of startup industry. It's very cool. Everybody wants to get in it. The reality is the people who are doing it well and the people who, who are doing it successfully they're not drinking beer and pizza because it's fun. They're drinking it because they are so depressed in the middle of the night about how they're going to pay their employees next week. They're eating pizza because it's the cheapest thing that they can get within five minutes because if they don't, they're going to pass out. Um, it, is, it is an incredibly difficult but rewarding career choice. But I think we have to, to call it out for what it is. It is not glamorous. It's extremely hard work, and it takes a lot of guts to get up and, and do a startup. And so I think there's a lot of work that we have to do about attracting the right people into the sector to make sure that we're really getting world-class world -class entrepreneurs. So going back to your question about Launch Vic, I think we play a role in all those areas. I think we need to think about our culture. What is it that we're promoting Melbourne as? I think it's um, about diversity. I think it's about how do we lift the caliber of the people that are in the ecosystem at the moment, whether they're the community builders or whether they're the entrepreneurs. Yeah. On the website, I actually ran through the website last night. I thought you did a really good job of articulating it in yeah. quite succinct little snippets. So I think the vision was vision to be for Victoria to be the number one destination for startups and entrepreneurs in Australia. So a lot of it's really around that community aspect, which I think is critical. Um, so another question linked to that. So you, it's been chosen, you know, 60 million bucks as a number and four years as a timescale. Where did those two numbers come from? Um, that's a very good question. I su suspect it's a cabinet paper floating around somewhere. Um, that was before my time, but it was um, certainly recognized that the Victorian government needed to do something to accelerate this sector, and I think good on them for, for, for recognizing startups as an important part of the economy and choosing to invest specifically in startups as opposed to jobs or, or more diverse areas, which we see other governments around the world and in, in Australia doing. So that's where the, the, the 60 million came from. The 4 million would have been a budget paper. Um, so four years. Four years, rather. Yep. Um, 
So, yeah, that's something that we're working hard to do. And I think that for us, we, we have a question, and I say we collectively, about whether um, the ecosystem thinks an organization like Lodgevik is important for the sector moving forward. My view is if we're doing a good job, we should be wanted by the sector. And if we're wanted by the sector, we should be encouraging government to continue to reinvest yeah. in the same way they have for tourism, um, in, uh, tourism Victoria, which is now Places Victoria, um, but um, visit Victoria, I should say. Um, so I think you know it, it's up to us as a sector, not up to us as LaunchVic, to dictate the future of what this organisation is. We can be here and do a good job for four years to put some great initiatives in place and really help move the sector along. But if we believe this in sector is important enough, we should be making sure the government of all persuasions know that and continue to invest in us. And, and is there any political risk for you? So like, if the government gets booted out or... Deladecus moves on or whatever it is, is that money going to um, go so, away? So the, the money, whenever you get money from government into something like LaunchVic, there is always political risk because a change of government can see a change of direction. So, you know, it's not inconceivable that a government could come in and say, we want LaunchVic to focus not on startups but on multinationals. We want a change of direction of, of the, the corporation. So um, we are, there's always a risk around government, but I think it's very important that this sector is viewed as a bipartisan sector um, and that it's an important part of our future as a state and, and indeed Australia's future is about generating companies where people are able to set up their own business, work on their own terms and create wealth, create GDP, create jobs. So I think it's, it's very important that we continue to take a bipartisan line here. So you think you're pretty safe? I think uh, you're never, never that safe when you're working around politics, um, but I think um, it's, it's, it's something that hopefully we do a very good job and we will continue yeah. to be here. Okay, so let, let's touch on that. So you say that do a really good job. Mm. What, what does success look like for LaunchVic in five years? Yeah, great question. So I think success, um, I think we have two goals of this organisation which are often different. And competing. One is to put us on the map. So we really want Victoria and Melbourne in particular to be recognised as a, as a global hub of, of entrepreneurship. And I wouldn't be here if I didn't believe that was possible. I truly believe we can be a world-class ecosystem and, and at very least recognised in Asia as one of the leading startup, startup hubs. I think um, achieving that goal is, is going to take a lot of work around not only talking about what our successes are, but also raising the bar of what we're doing today. So just lifting that excellence. So what can we do to empower the people that are out there today working in the community to help a better generation of entrepreneurs become better themselves so that they can teach, teach and train a better caliber of entrepreneurs? So that might be investor education. It might be supporting the accelerators. It could be creating new event programs. There's a whole host of ideas in that around excellence and world-class. The second piece is a government piece, which is around diversity, which is very important, that our sector continues to be open. And there's no idea that's a bad idea that shouldn't be explored at its initial premise. Don't get me wrong, there's lots of bad ideas that probably shouldn't be supported. Um, but we want the sector to be open to anybody. So whoever's got a bright idea, the fact that they've stood up and said, I've got an idea to grow pasta on trees, you go, fantastic, let's sit down and have a chat about that. Well, you can't really grow pasta on trees, but maybe you could make some pasta and, and, and create a business out of that. If they've got that passion and that little spark, we want to see that spark going forward, no matter, no matter what the idea is. Because it's the people 
are a big part of this. So you can have a phenomenal team with a crap idea, and that's going to generally do much better than a phenomenal idea and a crap team. And so you've got to get those people who have got the guts and the little fire in their belly to make that an absolute raging furnace in their belly so they keep moving. So that diversity piece is around making sure our regions have accessible opportunities to engage in the entrepreneurial ecosystem. It's about gender diversity. It's about cultural diversity. And that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to generate the next unicorn out of that area. It's about just allowing people to step up and say, I want to start my own company. I want to develop this idea. I want to contribute to our local economy. I want to create jobs. I want to create wealth. So I think we, those two goals are often not aligned. So we've got two very interesting paths that we have to walk down as an organization. Um, and I think to the moment we're, we're on the way to do that. And they're certainly not mutually exclusive, but we recognize that um, the world-class excellence is different from the diversity piece. Yep. If you think about um, a place like Israel, I mean, mm -hmm. it's, it's known very much for defense and mm -hmm. cyber security and some, yeah. some deep tech. So you think of Israel as being matched to a sector. Are we going to think of Melbourne as being matched to a sector, or Victoria, I should say, if being I matched to a sector? I have anything to do with it, yes. Okay, so <laughs> what is Melbourne going to be famous and, for? And this is what we, we're actually undertaking a consultation at the moment about where we should be focusing. And I think we, um, I think it's important to note that even though Israel is a, known as a defence sector or London's known as a fintech hub, other technologies come out of that. So it's not to say that everything has to be around fintech in London or defence in Israel. But the reality is, is it is known for that. Therefore, you get a, a, a momentum and a, a, an opportunities feeding off that. I think that if we were to pick one sector from my background, it would be the healthcare sector. We have got the third largest biomedical research precinct in the world. I think we're going into the next decade of innovation is going to be probably more sophisticated than the previous decade. Whereas in the previous decade, we had university students, most notably Zuckerberg, go, I've got a bright idea. Let's create a platform that allows people to communicate better together. And, and out pops Facebook. Um, obviously, a lot of hard work in between. I think those ideas are getting fewer and far between. The Ubers, the Deliveroo's, there's a lot of very simple ideas that have gone on and, and fantastic companies have been built. I think uh, we're going to go back to more of a 1990s model where you need, you know, you didn't go to Silicon Valley unless you had a PhD in electrical engineering, computer science and the like. It was extremely hardcore technology that was being commercialized and then the sector generated around that. And I think that um, we're going to see a similar sort of revival of this deep technology expertise. And I think our natural advantage is the healthcare sector. We just need to learn how to commercialize that. I think there are other advantages um, that we could also raise in that. I think we, you know, the pension capital of the world, I was told the other day. I'm not sure that's a title <laughs> Melbourne really wants, but the reality is, is we have the vast majority of pension superannuation being managed out of Victoria. We're the third um, greatest sports city in the world, and gosh, if anyone saw the tennis match the other night, you'd, you'd, you'd certainly agree with that. Um, I think uh, agriculture is something that in Australia we have a natural advantage, and it's one of our largest export industries is, is our agriculture, particularly beef and dairy. So um, there's a, there, are, there are a number of areas where we could play a, a lead. I think um, there are other areas that we have to recognize that are fledgling and coming up, and I commend the work that the government's doing on growing cybersecurity. It's a very important part of, of the technology world, but it's not somewhere that we're quite world-class at this moment in time. We're yeah. putting in place the jigsaw, 
and, and doing a lot of hard work and congratulations to the Victorian government for that work because it's very important. But I think we need a maturity before we can, can say we're world yeah. class in the startup ecosystem. I, I think that makes sense uh, for, on a number of levels. I mean, we, you know, in my day job and with Innovation Bay, we see mm -hmm. a lot of Uber for pets or whatever yeah. the, the things that are coming through. So it's nice to see a focus on the deeper tech stuff. But it's a challenge, though, for, I mean, healthcare and biotech and drugs and everything else. And it takes a long time to get a company from concept or lab to, to market. And you've only got 60 million bucks in four years. So, I mean, how, how tangibly are you going to support this? Uh, have you put money behind any health tech uh, initiatives and do you anticipate that you'll be doing that going forward? Yeah, look, it's something that we're working through at the moment as, a, as an organisation and I'd like to see us invest more in, in the healthcare sector but ultimately we're going through a very open and transparent consultation process which will become even more open and transparent in the next few weeks um, and there will be avenues for people to, to input um, to that. But I think, um, yeah, we need, to do, we need to do more. The reality is, is $60 million is, is not a lot of money. It, it may sound like a lot of money if you're a startup trying to raise 100000 or 500000 but from a government point of view, $60 million is not enough, but it is enough to be dangerous. And sometimes you can be very innovative, and a small amount of money can go a long way. I think there's some fundamental things that we could address, whether we choose to or not, as, as I say, we're going through a consultation at the moment, would be things like how do we change the culture around um, commercialization at universities? And I think it's something that our universities are really grappling with. They're grappling from an internal point of view. And I think, actually, it might be easier to do that externally. So right. that's one example of something that we could do and invest in a program that is, is a little different yeah. um, and a little riskier than perhaps what government would choose to naturally invest in or, indeed, what universities could undertake themselves. But so far, with the funding you've allocated, whether in the first round or the to-be-announced round, is there anything focused on that health tech yet? There will be something on health care in this round that will right. be announced so this morning. Half an hour. In about half an hour. Okay. Um, <laughs> but um, I think there's, there's recognition that there's more that we can do. In, in round two, we did get a lot of applications coming forward in, in healthcare. A lot of them were overlapping, and there was not one particular standout that yeah. we, we, we chose to work with, for example, leveraging Parkville or Monash's precinct. Yeah. Um, but it's certainly something that we're interested in exploring in the future. Okay, so can we just talk about the allocation of your, mm -hmm. your funds? So um, it's a year old now, so it was announced yeah. a year ago. Yeah. So you only stepped in, what? 16 October? weeks ago, yeah. Okay, so relatively recent. Mm -hmm. uh, You've announced round one, which was six and a half million across yeah. what a dozen? Eighteen projects. Eighteen projects, yep. and you're about to announce what four or five million? Yep, ish. It, it'll be ish. Just um, Google it; you can probably yeah, find it. Yeah, if you Google it, it it's still <laughs> technically under embargo. So, uh, but I, I, I know some, some, <laughs> some people are not quite as embargoed as, as others. So, <laughs> all right. So, but basically, within four months of the first allocation, there's been a second one. So mm -hmm. you're now up to, you know, twelve ish uh, million allocated. So what's the process going forward? What do the next three or four years look like? That's for yeah. the first question. And for the people in the audience that are thinking, how do I get some yeah. of this fantastic free money? Uh, what would you recommend to them? Yeah, well, first of all, I'll say it's not free. We, we certainly make you work for that money extraordinarily hard. That was the correct uh, answer. <laughs> um, the second thing is um, we're going through the process of reimagining what our grant rounds are like. The first two grant rounds were very open, and it was very much about community, you tell us what you think we need. And we had, uh, I read every single application, all 300 of them. Um, we had from startups in underwear 
uh, line, which was quite interesting, through to lawnmowers, through to mentoring schemes, through to new research ideas, through to events, conferences, accelerators, incubators, co-working spaces, meetups, the whole smorgasbord. And but so, did you not say startups couldn't apply? But they, they doesn't stop them. There's oh, okay. a lot of innovative startups out there. So you're not they're, going to give them any money, but they're, they're, yeah. they're practicing yeah, their applications. They're practicing okay. their applications. So um, I think we um, uh, we need to be more defined in where we go in the future. So I'd like to see us do a round in healthcare or okay. a round in diversity or a round in gender diversity or whatever it may be and be much more prescribed about what we do and run more frequent rounds, more frequent funding rounds that, that support that. I also think so it's quarterly? I mean, what's your anticipation? Uh, oh, look, we, we're, not, okay. we're not stating that at the moment, but I think more frequent rounds with smaller, smaller amounts. I mean, 300 grant applications is an extraordinary, extraordinary amount of work to go through to read. 300 applications, and my team and, uh, and, and I did a, did a bit of a marathon wow. effort before Christmas to, to read all 300, be able to shortlist them and uh, go through discussions with various groups. So it, w it was a real challenge. So I'd rather see us get a smaller number of proposals that we can really compare very easily what, what we're looking for, but also invest the time up front. I think it's very easy to run a grant round where you go, here are the guidelines, off you go. Um, you tell us what you need. We need to, as an organization, if we're going to lead a legacy, we need to know at least 80% of what we want. So prescribe very clearly what what is the market failure in the ecosystem that we're solving for and what, can, what, what do we want from applications. And then you can add the icing on the cake, which will ultimately hopefully distinguish who, who, who gets money and who doesn't. But I think if we can be much more prescribed in our process, that will make it easier for you applying for grants and it will make it easier for us assessing grants. Okay. You might not want to answer this one, but um, looking at the other state governments, so Queensland, yeah. New South Wales, WA to a degree, um, what are they doing well in regards um, you know, support for innovative startup ecosystems and what are they not doing well? Well, I think, I mean, I'm, I probably don't want to criticise or, um, you know, critique other state governments. I think it's recognised that this is a really important sector and this is about the future of work, it's about employment numbers, it's about economic development and it's about GDP. So I think every state government is doing their own thing of what they feel is right for their individual community and I, I don't know enough about the other communities to know what's, what's right. I think where I really like the Victorian government's model is that it's investing in the infrastructure. And I think that if we can do that correctly, you can actually create a much stronger legacy out of that. Yeah. So if we can help upskill and create the best accelerators in the world, that's really going to help our local community get better at, at be, being entrepreneurs. If we can create the best events in the world or the best events in Australia, we're going to help leave a lasting legacy for our community. So I think that's, that's what attracts me to this role, yeah. is that Victorian government's approach is, one, targeted specifically to startups. It's not, it's not lumped with other forms of policy. And two, it gives us an opportunity as a standalone company of arm's length from government to leave, leave a legacy. Yeah. So. Let me ask it a different way. Mm -hmm. um, is it healthy for the national startup ecosystem to have <coughs> essentially an arms race between some of the states? So, I mean, everyone seems to be throwing money and resources in different ways. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, you know, I've, I've seen the, I mean, Queensland, I think, is doing a good job, but a, a different focus. Mm -hmm. 
but there's definitely this has been this historical spat between certainly Melbourne and Sydney. Every time I come down here, I'm impressed actually by you guys just like, you know, we're going to fuck Sydney. Uh, <laughs> which may or may not be true, but is that a healthy um, scenario? I better put on the record that we don't say that at No, no, I know. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> Um, there's a healthy competition between Melbourne and Sydney, and I was involved in NBN and, and its establishment, and my gosh, if you could have seen the competition between Melbourne and Sydney about where headquarters were going to be, technical headquarters, and, you know, sitting in federal government in Canberra, uh, you know, being witness to that, there's always a healthy rivalry. We see the same with the banks. We see the same with global headquarters. Um, I think the, the state government has done a very good job here of attracting a large number of businesses internationally, and that goes for startups like the Zendesks and the Hired and, and various others through to, to, to standard retailers like H&M and, and others. It's one of the strengths of, of Victoria. Um, I think um, you know it's, a, it, it's horses for courses. I think that competition is healthy. And from my point of view, if you believe that the startup ecosystem is important to an economy, which I fundamentally do, why would a state government not step in and play a role in, in, in gendering a, a, a vibrant ecosystem? Yeah. So I, I think it's a, it's a healthy thing. Okay, so we're running out of your precious time here, so we've probably got about 15 minutes before you have to run out the door. So uh, let me ask one more question, and then we'll throw it to the audience for some, some questions. So... Uh, I mean, you've been around the startup ecosystem now for, what, five years, four years? Yeah, around and about. Um, probably not as engaged as, um, as I could have been. And I think that goes for a lot of um, startups. There are a lot of startups out there who are not engaging in the ecosystem. I was so heads down, bums up running a business um, with offices in Melbourne and the US as well as business in Israel and, and London, I, I didn't have time to engage in the ecosystem. And, and we actually have a lot of successful businesses that are doing that. So yeah. I think there's those that do engage and there's those that don't. So but I in, certainly it, have experienced yep. a startup, but would I say I have been around the ecosystem for a long time? I probably haven't as much as, as others So the have. question is more, I mean, for, I've been in my AWS role for, what, two and a half years now, and I mean, the, the growth in the ecosystem and the maturing of the ecosystem and the amount of money coming into the VC and, mm. you know, the fact it's now a national discussion point. I mean, all of that is, is healthy. So, yeah. you know, I guess the, the question, I mean, is a bit of a Dorothy Dixon, but are you optimistic about the startup ecosystem in Australia? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I think that we've got... Um, as I said before, we've got great people, we've got the money, we've got the ideas and the research base. I think we've got all the ingredients that many other ecosystems around the world could be grappling with. Um, and, and, and we've got them all here on a platter. What we haven't done is made the cake rise, and we need to find that baking powder somewhere. <laughs> and, and that's not just Victoria. I think right. that's across the board. We need to, to really think what is it that we can do to put Australia on the stage and I think some of it goes to the sorts of programs that I've spoken about and lifting excellence I think a big part of it goes to um, marketing and, yeah. and talking and it's not it's not a puff piece it's genuinely talking about our success stories I was saying before one of the things that's really stunned me coming into this role is the number of people in the ecosystem who cannot talk about successful startups they can talk about realestate.com, seek, and car sales. They can talk about the two guys down at the York Butter Factory or at, at, at the Hub or at Inspire9. They can't talk about the $20 million, $10 million market cap company that's in between. And, and there are great stories out there that are really successful, that have been around, that are growing, and, and we need to be able to have those, those businesses on the tip of our tongues and celebrate them. Because if we're going to amplify 
Melbourne and Australia as a, as a startup hub, it's endemic on everybody. It's not just Launch Vic. Everybody needs to be talking about it. That's what London's done so successfully with Tech City. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's celebrating it. Everybody's watching it. Yeah. And, and we don't do that culturally for whatever reason. We don't like to celebrate. We can do it in sports. So, you know, startup entrepreneurialism is a bit of a sport for those that have, have got the battle scars to prove it. And, you know, we need to be out there yeah. doing exactly what we do in sports. Celebrate those leaders, celebrate the, the businesses that are doing well, and, and really talk about it on a world stage. Yeah. And that's a red bubble, Kogan. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Which we've loved. I think we've had them all here, too. Um, all right. So who has got a question for Kate? And just shout out, let's go here first and then over there. Um, thanks, Kate. You talked about the uh, lack of telling the success stories, particularly those sort of mid-market cap companies. Is one of the challenges that uh, those institutional investors, those pension funds, haven't yet found a way to embrace or engage with those opportunities? Or secondly, the sorts of companies that are characterized by that sort of level of success aren't necessarily household names or they're not retail brands, or they're not doing the things that those institutional investors are interested in. So how do you, how do you close that gap, I think, is yeah. what I've seen. You raise a really important point, and I think you know our super funds. Uh, you may be aware, many of our super funds do invest in startups, but it's U.S.-based startups through through the valley and, and other areas. So, what, why, why is it that they're not investing here? And I think one of the things that I hear routinely is we don't have the caliber of entrepreneur here. So the people that are leading the startups are unknown quantities. Whereas in the valley, you might have second, third, fourth generation entrepreneurs that people have been through the system, know what they're doing. And it's not just the entrepreneurs, it's the staff that go with it. It's the COOs, it's the head of sales, it's the marketing people, it's the product support, it's the technology engineers. And so you create this virtuous cycle where people are leaving successfully or unsuccessfully, but having learnt, and they go back in, and then they're leaving. And so you're creating this growing body of people that are trusted, and they've, they've learnt five years ago, ten years ago, on other people's money, and now they're trusted. And I think that we have a long way to go before we get there. And the question is, how do you jump on that virtuous cycle when you haven't got that many people? You, you've got the Bassett Brothers and the Alassian guys, and but, you know they're, they're doing wonderful jobs in, in promoting entrepreneurship and supporting entrepreneurship, but we haven't got them in spades like you do in the Valley or in Tel Aviv. So, I think it's also worth pointing out, I mean, there are super funds coming into the sector. So Airtree, SquarePeg, Reinventure, Blackbird, they've all raised $200 million roughly from super funds. So it's starting to happen. Now, you can't just get all that money walloping the sector because mm. you're just going to get bad startups raising crazy money at stupid valuations. So, you know, it's, you're building a house here. Mm. I think, yeah, you know, absolutely it's, right. It's pillar by pillar. Yeah. All right, should we take, uh, yeah, there's one over here. Good question. I'm afraid I'm a new CEO, so I wasn't involved in that. Um, but for those of you who don't, the Spire 9 Dream Factory, um, it's the old Lonely Planet offices down in Footscray, and it's a phenomenal building, unbelievable views of the city. Um, and um, Inspire 9 have done a great job down here as an organization in, in driving the ecosystem and supporting a large number of businesses. They're one of the early players. Um, and so from my point of view, you know, they're trusted. They know what they're doing in from the, the terms of how to run a co-working space. They know their models. 
So um, I, I'm very excited to see that project evolve, and I think it's um, a great thing for, for Footscray and, and that region. Okay, anyone else? Yep, in the front. Um, you mentioned that moving forward you might become a bit more prescribed, and you even mentioned doing potentially individual rounds of one healthcare and one mm -hmm. however it might be. Um, and I just I can't help but question that a little bit because we obviously have uh, venture capital and institutional investors and, and private equity who are all quite prescribed. And in the startup space, uh, we obviously need to move quickly and be agile. And there's a lot of uh, about getting money with timeliness uh, to support the team at the right stage. And if you're becoming more prescribed in that way, I, I just I can't help but wonder how does that actually help the ecosystem and the people who really need the support. Yeah. So, so it's an interesting question. I think there are there are two things. One, we're we're not funding the businesses themselves. We're funding the startup ecosystem to to raise its its infrastructure, raise the caliber of the people that are supporting the infrastructure. I think. With $60 million, you can, you can choose to do a lot of things mediocre, or you can choose to do a few things really, really well. And I would rather we left a legacy of doing a few things that are really, really well. So the question is, what, what are those areas? And I think the fundamental questions that we're asking at the moment is, where are those market failures and where do we invest? Because quite frankly, we can't do everything. We can't support everybody with 60 million because we, we, we just simply, there's not enough money to, to go around. So I think the questions we have to ask are, are what, what are the fundamental areas that we want to solve for and invest in those? So people will necessarily be left behind on that. Other people will benefit. I think um, going to the particular sector that we, we focus on or sectors, if we choose to do that, we may, we may not. But I, as, as Ian was alluding to, I think as an ecosystem, you have to be known for something if you're going to be on the world stage. In the same way that people will talk about tech city as, as, as fintech or Israel as defense, I think that there needs to be a fundamental core expertise that the, that the ecosystem circulates around and is known on a national scale or international scale. That doesn't mean to say great technology can't come from left field areas. I mean, one of London's greatest exports is Deliveroo. It's got nothing to do with fintech except that it's transacting money, which is not a fintech. Um, so, so by lifting a portion of the ecosystem is in the way London has around fintech, they've lifted everybody else along with it. So I think it's about investing wisely, and we really need to make sure what precious funds we do have get targeted in a way that really, really support and make a lasting legacy. So, um, so just to follow up, so from what you, you've said so far, is that really going to be focused on the accelerators and the incubators uh, and, and that sort of... It's completely open as far as I'm concerned, and it's something that we're working through at this stage. To, to really, um, we're consulting quite widely with the with the ecosystem. We will have an open consultation process, um, so we really want as much feedback as possible to know where we need to invest to make sure we're doing the right thing. Quite frankly, the way we've done round one and round two have been really useful to understand where the ecosystem is at. I think, um, you know, in terms of is it is it solving for market failure? More often than not, I think the grants are solving for individual passion rather than market failure. And, and that's not the way to, to spend the money in the long term. It's a great way to test the market and, and see what's out there. But I think if we keep going broad, we'll end up not leaving a legacy that's that's going to really put us on the world stage, which is what I, I really believe so we should be doing. Can I ask a different question quickly? Mm. So uh, would you support a national... Um, body that happens to, to you know, be present in Melbourne. 
Yeah, I, I think that there. I think absolutely. I mean, I think it's it. it if you're passionate about the ecosystem, I mean, I'm here, my job is about growing Melbourne's ecosystem and the Victorian ecosystem, but ultimately growing, growing the ecosystem in Australia is only going to benefit Victoria okay. and Melbourne. So I think it's really important that we are, whatever we do is excellent. Yeah. And so long as it's excellent, then, then we're, we're, we're raising the bar. Um, and I think that you know there's a difference between excellence and passion, and when those two confluences come together, that's when you really hit something. And, okay, and that's, that's what we need good to, to hear. Find. All right, time for a couple more. Yep, this young lady. Question around commercialising yeah. research and healthcare specifically. So, so I think um, uh, you know, I, I think the university's IP policies are something I, I was working with the University of Melbourne and, and certainly had a little bit to do with their IP policies. And I think we, we need to recognise how much work goes into developing the IP. Secondly, how much work goes into developing a company. We need to generate researchers that are either prepared to hand that money over in a way that is going to go into a company and they could be the chief scientist or whatever. So we create culture of people wanting that for their careers in the same way that they've managed to successfully do in the UK transitionally or has been almost persistently there in the US research market. Um, secondly, we have to recognise how much work goes into growing a company once it's handed over. And I think at the moment that ledger is not quite balanced. I think you know, the academics and universities will protect their, their IP very fervently to the point that it doesn't necessarily become commercial when you're looking at it from a startup point of view, whether you're a CEO wanting to go in and take some research and commercialise it or whether you're an investor coming in to, to, to look at it. I think the University of New South Wales has got a really interesting model. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but they've ultimately given their uh, portions of their IP away for free. So um, and open their IP up um, in a way that they they get a, a more attractive uh, they feel a more attractive offering to external parties. I think that's a very interesting model to, to watch. It's heavily based on on UK models, um, and I think it's an area that needs a lot of thought about how you handle it. You have to recognise that researchers have put a lot of work in. At the same time, you have to recognise if you're going to commercialise it, there's an awful lot of work to go into it afterwards. I think we also need to change the psyche around research commercialization. More often than not, our universities are targeting licensing deals with multinationals. If you look at the Boston healthcare ecosystem as an example, the, the general road is get some IP, spin it out into a company, company deals with pharmaceutical. If you look at our model in Australia, it's more get some IP, get the university commercialization group to do a deal with a big pharmaceutical. Or, or, or multinational or whatever. So we, we're missing a gap in the middle. So it's a, it's a big cultural piece, and there's a big, ultimately, economic piece for the universities to, to grapple with. And I don't think, unless we grapple with that, I don't think we're going to open up that sector reasonably. I think the amount of money that's asked for for IP at universities makes it unattractive, um, which therefore necessarily pushes it towards a licensing arrangement. Obviously, okay. not always the case. But just a quick time check. Eight thirty-nine. It's just quick. Have we got time for one, one more? more? Yeah, yeah. One more. Okay. So maybe someone at the back. No. All right. Uh, who was first between you two? This dude. Sorry, I think he was there. 
Um, so you mentioned um, tall poppy syndrome, a lack of uh, great entrepreneurs in this town, and then telling the story around the, I don't know, you said Mark Capney and sort of yeah. uh, startups. What catalysts have you seen that are telling that story now in this ecosystem, or sh how do we start telling that story? How, how do we articulate success better? Is that maybe paraphrasing? No, I mean, like, how do we how do we how do we raise the profile of that story, or have you seen like initiatives that are, that are doing? That? Ah, okay. I, I think it's something that we need to spend a bit of time working through. I think um, one of the things that I would encourage everybody to do is celebrate success. One, you know, if you if you if you hear of somebody raising, if you hear of somebody doing well, celebrate it. At the end of the day, even if you disagree with the business model, you disagree with the idea, it's your competitor, whatever it is, they've got money. That money is going to do something. If nothing else, it's going to teach those people, and they'll learn. The worst case scenario is they fail. The worst, the best case scenario out of that is that they've learned a lot. They come back around, they step back into the ecosystem, and they're better next time round. So we need to celebrate and 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 reward people and communicate and amplify what we do. We've got great things going on, but we just don't amplify. Whether that's through Twitter, whether that's through dropping your mate a phone call when they've they've raised, whatever it is, amplify, talk about, get out there as a community, and keep keep discussing, keep keep talking, keep promoting, keep celebrating. And the more we do that, the more we open up to government, the more we open up to major corporates, the more we celebrate our own ecosystem, the more we'll attract people in. So I think it's generating that very positive culture around the ecosystem is really important. Just a, for example, what we could do with our own crunch base, for example, like, you know, a database on sorry, startup in this town. Yeah, and, and Startup Victoria is working with us on something very similar to that. So, yeah. yeah. Okay. I don't want Fantastic. to make you late for the minister, yeah, so better not be late. we shall call it there. But look, Kate, thank you so much for coming along. It was great to meet you, and let's have a round of applause. Thank you. Let's get